Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July 28, 2016. It is a Thursday, and this is episode 1837 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, it is also a show all about you guys, because this is all based on calls from the audience, and because some of the calls... I'm going to have pretty short responses to it. I was able to fit 10 calls into today's show. I think it'll be a great one. Definitely varied topics from practical to philosophical to serious to not so serious. And a really cool uh, song at the end of the show today for you guys. Taking you all the way back to 1978. You'll have to wait until the end of the show to see what that is. Unless... You're on the blog and listening online, then you can probably see it in the show notes. On those calls, today we're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. We're going to talk about training an offhand shooter. You're right-handed trying to train a left-handed shooter. Leo speaks out on division, and this is going back a few weeks, but I can hear the pain in the guy's voice, and I wanted to play this for you. This call was made right around the time of the Dallas police shootings. Uh, question on the use of compost and comfrey tea in the garden that we'll talk about. Is there such a thing as a good electric knife sharpener, like one you just go in the knife sharp? Uh, I'm going to give you straight to the point there. The answer is going to be no, but I'll tell you the alternative rather than becoming an expert at sharpening knives with stones. Uh, advice for a northern boy moving south, dealing with a grass incursion onto a brick patio. And you got those brick patios and the grass keeps popping up, and what do you do about it? Uh, caller asks, well, you said premium gas isn't worth it, so is premium oil, premium oil worth it? Or does synthetic make sense? That's a, It depends that we'll give you an answer to. We also have a question. That the guy doesn't know this is what he's asking, but Paul from Australia is asking a question about the difference between regulation and law enforcement. And it's an interesting one to look at. And we'll finish up with some thoughts on the new farm bot, uh, the automated robot that can run your garden in your backyard. And, uh, and a unique challenge that lies in the way of it maybe, you know, becoming an employee force for your spin farmers, your urban farmers, that type of thing. Before we get into all that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life. And the advice I gave most business owners every day was, do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com to learn more today. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at knifekits.com. And with that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1837, and uh, so we're looking at the ep or the episode's 1837, so we're looking at the year 1837. Alex Shrugged has three for us today at tspwiki.com. Again, tspwiki.com. Guys, the wiki is a hell of a lot more than just these history segments. It is basically an encyclopedia 
of survival, self-sufficiency, and self-reliance knowledge, and we need your help there. You get over to tspwiki.com, you can make articles, add to articles, do all that stuff. You're like, I don't know how to do it. Videos show you how to do everything. It's like Wikipedia, but it's Wikipedia for us. We control it, we run it, and uh, we have no, uh, let's say, government underlying socialist agendas in the way. But on the history segment we have today, the panic of 1837, we have kindergarten. It's for the children. And we have killing Lovejoy. And in other news, the cell theory of biology becomes reality this year. Uh, Giuseppe Mazzini is exiled to London. He will foster a number of revolutionary groups across Europe, including Young Italy and the Young Turks. Thus, we have Italy united as a country one day, and Turkey will come into being. And we have the electric telegraph is patented, and the newfangled Morse code will be demonstrated. Morse code will still be op uh, adopted as the standard. So the telegraph is really about to change the world in regard to communications. I'm going to read the Panic of 1837. It is too easy to blame Andrew Jackson for strangling the second bank of the United States and causing economic panic. Granted, he didn't help the situation, but analysts cannot agree as to the direct analysts cannot agree to the direct cause of the Panic of 1837. <laughs> Nevertheless, it is clear that BC, that is real heavens to Betsy coin money, is moving west along with massive migration of people. It is emptying New York coffers. For context, the cities of Chicago and Houston are incorporated this year. Martin Van Buren has replaced Jackson as president, but before he left, Jackson had withdrawn the deposits of the United States government from the federal banks and distributed the coin to the state banks of uneven reliability. For better or worse, that moved a lot of coin out of New York and drained their reserves to dangerously low levels. At this time, the only legal tender is gold or silver coins. Banknotes are not legal tender, so when the people try to redeem them for real coin money, maybe to cover their stock market losses or to move west for better pastures, the banks run out of real coin money and refuse to redeem their private banknotes. Many banks close their doors. By next year, the economy will improve only to take a nosedive the year after that. The economy is running a roller coaster, and a lot of people are going to get hurt. My take by Alex Shrug, most people today engage in electronic fund transfers such as credit card purchases and direct deposit. This makes the coin shortage issue go away, mostly. People trust electronic notations and computer ledgers until they don't. When Cyprus banks were collapsing in 2013 due to economic upheavals of Greece, the account holder took a 41.5% haircut exchange for the equivalent in bank stop. Stock. Thanks a lot. Why didn't the depositors pull out their money first? The banks were closed and electronic withdrawals were limited until the required amount was digitally transferred to Germany. It was a, quote, one-time, unquote, event, like it always is until the next time. Maybe Grandpa wasn't so crazy when he started hiding money in coffee cans under his bed. Bitcoin could solve an individual's initial problems by shielding a certain amount of money, but one must own Bitcoin first, and thus we return to the age-old problem. If I am not holding an acceptable coin in my hand... The transactions soon break down into a barter economy until enough acceptable coin is available to act as money. That is my thinly veiled attempt to advise a listener to have cash on hand just in case. You probably won't be given much warning before the government decides that you don't really need all that money to get by. Yeah, definitely. If the government's ever going to grab money, they're not going to talk about it for weeks and months on end. It'll be done under emergency action. And I'll tell you the place they would target first is IRAs and 401ks. That would be the first place they would target. Now, don't go freaking out. Don't go dragging all your money out of it. You'll actually hear rumblings of this before it happens, but 
it'll be rumblings, 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 and then it'll get quiet, and then boom, they'll they do it. That's and we'd have to be in a state where you you should expect that they would do it. Now the average idiot won't expect it, but you paying attention should expect it. Um, and and that is a reality. The reason they would do it there is it's captive. It's captive. But the more people rely on banks, the more captive their money becomes. I am a big fan of cryptocurrencies. And uh, the most stable among them right now, of course, being Bitcoin, uh, makes a lot of sense to me to have some money there. Definitely have some cash, have some hard, what I call hard money, which would be gold and silver in some form or another. You can actually put your hands on I believe all of those are good insurance policies. Um, but my take on this is really more about the blame that Andrew Jackson gets. See, it's all his fault. He uh, he got rid of the central bank, uh, empowered the state banks, took all the money from the uh, the central bankers, gave it to the states, and the states just couldn't handle it, screwed it up. Um, that's that's not even close to what happened. Um, the, the the big banks, the New York, the international bankers, the the, the Rothschilds, etc weren't happy about this, so much so that there was an attempt on Jackson's life during his presidency. I think there were two, actually, that failed. But, I mean, it's the same old, same old, really. It's kind of like the uh, a different panic, a panic of 1907, um, with collusion by the Morgans and, and the Rockefellers, first leaking information that they were pulling their money out of banks, uh, causing a bank panic, and then... Morgan, J.P. Morgan steps in as the hero, even though he helped cause the panic and put a whole bunch of his money into the banks to prop them up. And then next thing you know, um, this cat named Nelson Aldrich, who is the father-in-law of John D. Rockefeller Jr., investigate, you know, it launches this investigation into the crisis to propose a, a, a future solution, and this gives us what, you know, a few years later in 1913, the Federal Reserve. See, here's what I believe. When you see a pattern emerge and there's an explanation other than the pattern and the pattern is consistent throughout time, it's still probably the pattern. We're back to Occam's razor there. The simplest solution is probably the right one. The banks created the crisis. They wanted a crisis because they were the ones that could fix the crisis. I mean, it, it, it's a typical thing. If you want to feel needed, you need people to feel pain because of your absence. And, and that's really, I think, what sent the country into a tailspin uh, in the Panic of 1837. And then, you know, I'm just saying, <laughs> you just kind of look there. Uh, what is it, 70 years later in 1907? Um, the same thing, the same old, same old. And we'll see that there's multiple panics in between, and it's always uh, the banks that benefit from the financial panics. And there, I could go into a whole show on multiple panics, if you want to call it that, and shortages where it's not just created by the banks, but there's actually remaining records of the banks actually colluding with each other uh, in what you would think of today as like memos, like memos to agencies and things like that. Because back then, you know, it wasn't like the Internet was there and you could just disseminate all this information if you found a leak. And uh, they were pretty open about their collusion because you only saw the collusion if you were in the club, the big club that you're not in. It's not a new thing, despite what you may think when you listen to George Carlin talk. Uh, from the beyond, by the way. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take your first call of the day. 
Hey, Jack. John in Michigan. Curious, teaching somebody to shoot. Um, uh, that is the opposite uh, eye domination as you, right-handy, left-handy, that kind of thing. Um, background, I heard you talk to him where I just listened, re-listened to the, the Steel Stenog, uh show and was thinking, we're, my wife and I are right-handers and we're having trouble teaching our seven-year-old daughter who is predominantly left-handed, even though she, I think she's a prime candidate to be ambidextrous, but trying to teach her to, to shoot left-handed when we're both right-handed. This cheek weld, sight picture, all that's kind of getting hard for us to do. I thought if, uh, wondering if you had any thoughts on it. Appreciate it, and I hope everybody has a great day. Thanks for the show. Okay, good question. Uh, a little advice that's not really related to the part of the call you heard. When you make a phone call, especially if you're recording, it's a good idea to make that gun sure you've hung up the phone. In this case, it was no big deal or anything, but there was another two minutes of uh, a guy walking around and dealing with his dog. I just say, dude, you should probably listen to the uh, the dog training podcast I did recently. Uh, on this question, um, here's the deal. Uh, the first thing to do before you worry about this whole left-handed shooter thing is to determine if she should be shooting left-handed in the first place. Just because you're left-handed doesn't mean you should be shooting left-handed. Just because you're right-handed doesn't mean that you should be shooting right-handed. The first thing to do is to determine eye dominance. If you are left-eye dominant and you are right-handed, you should learn to shoot left-handed. If you are right-eye dominant and you are left-handed, you should learn to shoot right-handed. So you can look up how to do that if you don't already know, and it may be the case that you've already done that. You sound like you know what you're doing, so I assume that you have, but it, I would be remiss if I didn't bring that up, especially for everybody listening. You, you do not choose which hand you shoot with based on your strong hand. You choose which hand you shoot with based on your strong eye. It is actually very easy to develop the skill set necessary for form shooting. It's not, it's not a minute thing. It's not like playing jacks or um, riding cursive. Shooting is actually pretty fundamentally simple in the position being right and everything. Okay, so let's just leave that. As far as teaching someone who is legitimately needing to shoot the offhand from you, this applies to you if you're a left-handed shooter and you're trying to shoot a, teach a right-handed student. It's very difficult for them to comprehend what they're supposed to be doing by looking at you because it's backwards. Okay, But the fundamentals are the same. It's still the stock weld, the cheek weld, the head position, all of that. I think one of the best things you can do for any shooter, again, and we talked about this last week when we talked about the airsoft issue, is to video them and take pictures of them and then correct them not while they're standing there not knowing what the hell they're talking about, you're talking about because they can't see you, okay? But they can actually see, you can say right here, this is your head's too far down, the gun's wrong, your, your head is over this. And the reason I bring up the... The left eye dominance, right eye dominance issue is if you have a child and you're teaching them to shoot with iron sights, you may not even realize what they're doing. They may be, in fact, trying to use their right eye while shooting left-handed, and that's never going to work, which is why we, we don't even try Okay, with the eye dominance issue. But the other thing is they just may not know what the hell you're talking about. The other thing you said, eight years old. Okay, eight-year-old girl. 
nothing wrong with an eight-year-old girl shooting. I, I wish every eight-year-old girl was out shooting with her daddy tomorrow. I think that would be really great for our country. However, we do have to look at the physical limitations here and make sure we're not putting a child into a gun that's either improperly sized for them or too heavy. Because you are not going to have good form with a rifle that's improperly sized. And I would say this. I've mentioned it before. One of the best first BB guns for a kid is the Daisy 105 PAL. I think they're like less than 20 bucks. Right? They're a great first BB gun. When my son was eight years old, it was the first BB gun he got. I can shoot it, but I can't shoot it right. Because it's too damn short. There's, there's no possible way that I can shoot that rifle right. It just doesn't work for me because it's too short. Conversely, if I took an adult and handed them a full-size adult rifle and I added uh, a, a wonky-looking slip-on recoil pad that added four inches length of pull to it and then I took a four-pound dumbbell and duct-taped it about three-quarters down the barrel toward the front to make it weigh front-end heavy, okay, It said, here, show me proper rifle form. You're not going to shoot right. And what you're going to end up doing to try to compensate is the lean back. You're going to have the rifle not right where it belongs in the pocket. You're going to have it more out toward the bicep and the joint, which if you develop that skill early when you're using light recoiling rifles, when you put a 3006 there and it hits you in that spot, it freaking hurts and you can't control your recoil well. But you're going to get it out there to get leverage. You're going to lean back. And you're going to hold the rifle up by leaning and bending your back, kind of almost like you're trying to put an arch in your back backwards. Because you're going to have to, to try to get close to what you're being asked to do. So many times with our children, we're putting a full-size rifle or even a youth model that's still a bit big for them in their hands, and we're asking them to hold proper form, where if we scaled that rifle up and put it out of proportion to ourselves, we wouldn't be able to do it. So make sure we're not trying to move too fast, you know, with moving them up in, in, in shooting hardware. Like I said, start with something like a 105 PAL. Start with a plastic toy gun that weighs, you know, half a pound that's made for a kid. You can learn to get your head position right with that. Build a training gun together out of some 2x6. Make one, cut it out. Make a fully wooden thing. Learn some woodworking together and, you know, eventually, I don't know, throw a wooden dowel on it for a barrel and some clothespins and make a rubber band gun out of it. But, but teach them proper form with something that fits them. Assuming you're doing that, the, the only other thing you can really do is find people shooting left-handed doing it right and Find images of that and show them what it looks like in a picture. That's one thing. Or if you know somebody that's shooting the way that you're trying to train the person that you're trying to train, if you know someone that shoots well that is left-handed, get them involved so that they can see what that looks like because, yeah, it's difficult. And what's very difficult is for you to correct their form. That's, that's the most difficult thing. If you're a right-handed shooter and you have a person in front of you who's holding the weapon right-handed, then you can kind of get behind them and you can kind of position them because you know what to do. You get behind them when they're left-handed and you're sitting there going, I, yeah, it doesn't work for me. So those are the best pieces of advice I have. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. Austin here from Central Texas, uh, law enforcement officer. I guess you can understand why I'm calling in. Um, tired of it. What happened in Dallas 
I, I'm not going to comment on the other shootings uh, that have occurred, the officer-involved shootings, because I don't know enough information to say one way or the other. But what I do know is I'm tired of the division that's being created between law enforcement and citizens and tired of this fight where people are dying. Thank you. Well, you know, man, so am I. So am I. And as I've, I've said so many times, I've, I've called on, you know, law enforcement as a whole. You guys have to step up and you guys have to point out that it's not a few bad apples. It's a, if you've never heard me rant on that before, I'm not going to rant here at all. In fact, I have some helpful ideas to add to this in just a second. But when, when you say it's a few bad apples, it's a very insulting thing. You know, Eddie Haskell on Leave It to Beaver was a bad apple. Um, the story that I put out on Facebook today about a SWAT team that raided a guy who was simply passed out drunk in his, his bathtub with no criminal record, flashbanged the guy twice, tased him in the back of the neck, yank, literally yanked him out of the tub by his balls, um, shot him in the arm with a, 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 like a, a stun round, a non-lethal stun round, uh, and then tried to ruin his life by covering their shit up and, and issuing multiple warrants uh, multiple uh, charges on him, the, the most serious never getting past a grand jury, several others being thrown out of court, and turned out this man did nothing wrong at all. Nothing wrong at all. And it all started out because one of his friends was concerned that he was kind of depressed and had been drinking and just wanted basically a welfare check. And uh, this, t this SWAT team, because he's known to be armed, which means he owned one shotgun that was in his closet while he's laying in his bathtub, uh, drunk and just kind of sleeping things off, taking a bath, Uh, they come in and do all this shit. When stuff like that's going on and no single law enforcement officer will publicly stand up and say, you know what, that's wrong. How are we going to move past this divide? So I've been tough on cops and I've gotten a lot of emails lately, like four different cops have emailed me, different emails, but basically the same thing. Jack, there is no such thing as the thin blue line. We do not all have each other's backs, but these bad cops are protected by the system and by the unions, and there's not a damn thing most of us can do. You know, internal affairs in many instances is a joke. They go after good cops because there's some kind of, uh, you know, uh, attitude, there's some kind of, uh, Uh, the guy that won't go along, they'll target, right? And the unions back these scumbags, and, and there's nothing we can do. We can't get rid of them. And so I've thought about this, and I have two solutions. One's dramatically simple, but as far as I'm concerned, subject to massive fraud. And then the other one would be more complicated to administer, but actually would be probably very reliable. So let's start out with the fact that it's claimed that most law enforcement officers are good officers. Well, you know, sellers on eBay have a reputation. That reputation is not very subjective at all. It is pretty damn accurate, because every single person that does business with that seller has the opportunity to review the seller and say, this was a great interaction with the seller. I, I appreciated the way that this seller handled the deal. And even when things go wrong, often you'll end up with a positive review because uh, the item arrived broken, but I contacted the seller, and since it was a one-of-a-kind item, they had me return it, and they gave me my money back. Or they could replace it, so they replaced it free of charge or whatever. So that system works. Now, 
With law enforcement officers, there'd be a lot of people that would say they would use any kind of a public system like this to damage the reputation of any officer that you know did so much as wrote them a speeding ticket or something like that. And I think we have to judge law enforcement officers not on our libertarian or anarchist ideals if we're of that persuasion because most of the country isn't us. They're in a system they're being asked to work. But we should hold them accountable to be uh, loyal to the oath they've taken to the United States Constitution and their state constitutions and the policies and procedures that are expected of them and then what is reasonable as a human being. We should, we should be, you know, accept that. My understanding from most law enforcement officers that I speak to is you completely agree. So what about this? What if we created a reputation system for officers that was handled by other officers? And what if you were publicly reviewed but could critique privately so you face no repercussions from internal affairs, from your chief, from the fake thin blue line you guys tell me you have? Something akin to this. I, you need some kind of computer geniuses to do this, but there's lots of them in the liberty movement, right? And if you can get off of your cop-hating crap and actually try to solve the problem and work with these guys, it might work something like this. We can set up a bank account where you can't pretend to be me and write checks against me. You, you can't just get into my account and wire shit out. You know, we can do that. Um, so we should be able to set up a secure system like this. It's relatively easy to prove that you are, in fact, a law enforcement officer. All of these guys work for a department, an agency. They have a badge number, something like that. There could be you join this thing, and you're, you're a known quantity when you join, and that creates a profile for you, or you can have one created for you if you're the asshole, by the way, and, and you don't want to do it for yourself, that sits out in the public domain, but your actions are in a private domain. And you can't rate yourself. You can't rate yourself. You can answer accusations against yourself publicly, but you have to do that as yourself. But as a raider, right, and public doesn't get to comment on it, only other officers. This is what I would call the new um, electronic department of external affairs, where good cops could say, Officer Jackass violated this subject's, this individual's rights. In front of me, I reported it and nothing was done. The problem with that then gets back to, well, then they know who did it. Right? Right? So I don't know how you fix this. Maybe you need actually the departments themselves to, be, to go along with it. To create a system that's designed to win the public's trust. But see, I don't believe government and the state will ever do that. But somebody somewhere, sure could take what I'm just kind of spitballing right now and create an officer rating system. What if we did it as a public rating system? When you dealt with a law enforcement officer, you were able to say, this guy did a good job, a bad job, whatever. And then how do you handle things like, well, I got a speeding ticket and it wasn't fair because I was only doing six miles over, so I give him one star or something like that. I don't know, but there has to be some way some sort of computer algorithm that can filter out the stupidity or at least make the waiting more about, well, did the guy actually violate? Because if you were speeding, right, and you got a ticket, and the guy just simply was reasonable to you, asked for your ID, checked your shit, wrote you a ticket, and said, here, if you want to argue about it, go to the judge, that's textbook. 
Whether you think they should have the ability to do that or not is irrelevant. The guy did his job the way he was asked to do his job. Now, if he started, if he drags shit out of your car without a warrant, right? If he's rude, if he's obnoxious, if he's threatening, then those types of things. But how do you prevent people from lying about it? I don't know. I don't know. And then whenever that cop gets into a situation where it looks bad, but he really did his job, all that can hurt him. And that's not necessarily good. But there, there, there must be some fraud-proof way where officers just sim- maybe it's just simply the officers rate other officers. And you have a reputation with a high of a hundred and a low of a zero. I mean, it could be that simple. You just everybody rates the guy. They, you know, well, good old boys are going to take care of each other, but well, there's only so many good old boys. And if people could do it without free, fear of reprisal, And the, the officers that would, would participate in this type of a system would be the frustrated good cops. Wouldn't you think? Wouldn't you think the asshole cops are that's a terrible idea. I want nothing to do with that. I'll have that. Well, somebody might just say, well, jackass, officer jackass, we're going to make a profile for you and start rating you whether you like it or not. But there still could be some sort of a checkpoint. Maybe it's even a paid service to be part of it so that you could afford a manual check By retired cops. A lot of you retired cops get a pension, looking for something to do to serve the public. Hey, what about setting something like this up? What if there, I'm just saying, again, I don't have the answer to the exact how, but what if there were a way that officers could become known quantities both to their own departments, to other departments that might hire them when they finally get the boot, and to the public, good or bad, based on something with a reality check against it. Because when I hear, well, Officer Jackass was decorated four times, it doesn't really mean anything to me. I knew people in the Army that got decorations that were jackasses. It didn't mean that they were good at what they did. I mean, they were in the right place at the right time and kicked it, kissed the right ass connected to the right toes to kick somebody else's ass. That's all it meant. But if I look at an officer's record and over 10 years he's rated very highly as being fair, practical, impartial, and I think people that know their cops know the cops that are like this, and they know the cops that are assholes. It might be useful. I'm not sure how to skin it yet, but that's my idea of the day. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Michael from Texas. I have a question about comfrey tea and compost tea. I'm wondering... Is it possible to combine the two into a single additive for your garden? Um, if you can do that, do you brew them simultaneously in the same container, or do you brew them separately and then recombine? I'd love to hear your thoughts. I sure appreciate your, what you're doing. Have a good day. Well, you could combine them at the same and, and apply them. That that would be okay. You wouldn't make them at the same time, and I'll. I'll explain why here, but what I have to basically explain first is how you make each one and what, what the purpose of each one is. So compost tea is made with compost, and compost is generally, most balanced composts are somewhere in the neighborhood of a 1-1-1 in their nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium uh, ratio. Your three primary, not the only, but the three primary ingredients that plants need to grow. So they're a balanced thing. They might be 1, 1, 5, 1, and a different compost might be 1.2, 1.5, I mean, it's going to vary, but it's going to be somewhere in that 1, 1, 1 range, which means if we make a T from it, that T is probably going to be less than that, 
Okay, So it's really not a fertilizer. Now, compost is made by putting organic matter together in, in, a, in a nitrogen-carbon ratio that causes a breakdown, and it creates a, creates a biological activity, and as that compost forms, you end up with lots of nutrients, micronutrients, but you also end up with lots of microorganisms. And since you've done a proper compost instead of an, you know, an anaerobic compost, you've done an aerobic compost, meaning with oxygen, you end up with the good guys, not the bad guys for all your little microbes and things like that. So when we make a compost tea, what we're really doing is we're, we're, we're fertilizing with microorganisms. So that's, that's what we're getting from the compost tea more than anything else. Benef we're, 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 we're stocking the pond. All right. So there is some fertility there, but it's mostly stocking the pond. Right? We've put fish in the pond, so to speak. When we use fertilizers, what we're doing is we're feeding the fish. Is another way to look at it. So we're we're putting in the nutrients that the fish and the aquatic uh, plants that we'll consider in this case the actual plants need to consume to do their business. Okay. So when we put comfrey tea on plants. The primary thing that we're doing is we're applying a high potassium, right? The K for potassium, so nitrogen and P phosphorus K potassium. Comfrey tea is about five parts potassium. It's a very high potassium fertilizer. It has a little bit of nitrogen and phosphorus, but lots of potassium. In general, this is really useful for fruiting plants like melons and cucumbers and stuff. And the best time to apply it is right when they're beginning to set their fruits. So just as you have the little green tomatoes, the little uh, green uh, melons, etc., right as they're starting to flower and they're going to be doing it, they have a pretty high potassium draw at that point. So that's the best time. It's never bad, but that's the best time to apply that liquid manure is what we call when we make comfrey tea. When we make comfrey tea, we make a stinky, nasty, fairly uh, anaerobic, in absence of oxygen, uh, compost basically. We're taking lots of leaves, we're shoving them in a bucket, we're adding a little bit of water to cover them, we put a weight on it to hold them underneath it, and they break down under that water. That's how that happens. To make compost tea, we've already made it an aerobic, right, an oxygen-based compost. We're putting it in a tea bag or something like that, and we're hanging it in some water. And if we really want to gild the lily a little bit, then we put an air stone in there with an air pump or some other means of agitation, and we get it going, and we oxygenate the water at a higher level, and we breed microorganisms. That's what we're doing. If you make comfrey tea and you agitate it for 24 hours before you apply it, what you're doing is you're upping the number of fish you're putting in the pond, or more accurately, the plankton you're putting in the pond, right? The photo and zooplankton that are going to the pond. That's how to think about it, okay? So if we try to make compost tea, while we're breaking down the comfrey, we're combining an aerobic and an anaerobic activity, and we're basically going to kill off the aerobic activity, which is the multiplication of the microbes. And if you've ever made comfrey tea, it stinks. So the way that one would do this is one would make up comfrey tea and compost tea. And then you would generally dilute them. Comfrey tea you generally dilute at about somewhere between 10 and 15 to 1. And compost tea you can dilute anywhere from a quarter 
all the way up to 15 to 1. So you just figure out how much you want to add. And then, yes, if, as a sprayer or a watering can, whatever, you can put some comfrey tea in, some compost tea in, add your water for dilution, and then apply as necessary. The difference, though, is we might want to actually spray compost tea on the plants. And while it wouldn't really hurt anything to do that with comfrey tea, it wouldn't really be that beneficial. It's much better to put comfrey tea to the ground, um, as well as you really want to use comfrey generally as a fertilizer. So we want to make sure we're putting it right where the plant is. Where we might take compost tea and we might spray the whole area ground with it because even a little bit in an area, especially if it's good soil, but it's good and friable and it's got good mulch, we're going to increase that, that, that biological activity in the soil everywhere. So we may, may or may not choose to use them together, but we definitely wouldn't make them together, if that makes sense. Hopefully that helps. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Harlan from Indiana. My question is, what is a good electric sharpener for kitchen knives? I know we're supposed to do stuff hands-on and everything, but being a stay-at-home dad, it's just easier if I can just run it through an electric sharpener a couple times. And We have ones that aren't electric. They just don't do the job anymore, and I just... Wanted to see if you had one in mind. Thank you. All right. So if there's a good electric knife sharpener, it's not what you're asking about. It would be like a belt sharpener, and there's various different models of them where it's actually using a fine grain belt, and it looks almost like a grinding belt, and you're, you're, you're restoring or putting an edge on a knife. And, and those are very specialized pieces of equipment, and they're quite expensive. And if you knew what those were, you probably wouldn't be asking this question. You'd just be deciding whether you want to spend the money on them or not. If I was going to sharpen a lot of knives, that's what I would use. Um, it just wouldn't make sense. If I was going to sharpen one or two knives, then I might get really good at using a whetstone. And I think a whetstone is better than an oilstone overall for sharpening. And I'd pick up a, a copy a, a copy of uh, Patrick Rohrman's uh, video, Beyond Razor Sharp, and I'd learn how to use whetstones. I mean, that's, that's the honest answer as to how to get your knife sharp. However, I'm a lot like a lot of people. I only have so much freaking time, and I do not have time to sharpen four or five knives a week or something like that on a whetstone, or even a month. I have all kinds of other shit to do, and there's a lot of things that they're like kind of, you know, trades, arts, whatever you want to call them, that I'm passionate about, and there's some that I'm not. And I try to spend my time doing the things I'm passionate about because I get one dash to live in my life, one dash between the two years, born and died, and I don't want to spend a lot of it doing the things I don't like. And I don't like sharpening knives very much. I really don't. I can do it, but I don't really care. So that puts you in a position of, well, that would be great if they had a little machine and I turned it on and it went, and I took the knife and went, through it, and I got a nice sharp knife. Um, I've tried a lot of them. They're all crap. They actually ruin knives, in my opinion. They just do. The solution is to pay a professional to sharpen your, sharpen your knives and then use practices and techniques that keep them sharp as long as possible. One might be having a special set of really cheap knives for your spouse if they are not willing to learn proper knife care. I have to do that with my wife. If I let my wife use a knife of mine at all, it will become dull to the point that I have to take it back to somebody that knows what they're doing, like Patrick when he comes here, or I have to send it to somebody or take it to somebody else and say, please sharpen this, please, please restore the edge. Okay, there's two things that you can do to make your knife stay sharp as long as possible 
that are that are very simple. And there's other things like don't abuse it, don't abuse it, don't let it get dull in the first place, um, and don't don't do things like don't put it in a dishwasher. Knives do not go in dishwashers. Knives do not go in dishwashers. Do not put your knife in the freaking dishwasher ever. Just so I'm totally clear. Now, best practice. Get an end grain cutting board. And one more time, get an end grain cutting board. My favorite good quality low cost end grain cutting board is made from bamboo. I will put a link for it for you in today's show notes so you can see it on Amazon. It's about 60 bucks if I remember. The reason you want end grain is if you take your hands, pretend you're praying, not with your hands folded, but straight up where you've got them making like a you know church steeple thing and a straight up, and look down at the tops of your fingers. That's what an end grain cutting board looks like. Like Now imagine a blade coming across that. It goes in between those little end grains, and it does it now. That's how that would work. Now take your hands and untake them from prayer and put them out in front of you like you're going to play slaps, and you're the one with your hands on top. Put them back together where your thumbs are buried underneath, and look at that. Now imagine that's the wood grain, and now you draw a knife across them across your knuckles. What happens to the wood? It's going against that grain, and it's going to be more likely to more quickly dull the freaking knife. No glass cutting boards, no plastic cutting boards. The germaphobes need to do the research and realize that the whole idea that microbes are going to hide inside your cutting board and reproduce is nonsense, and we'd all be dead by now because our ancestors would have all died because it's what they used. You clean your cutting boards, you oil them, you go on with your life, and grain. Number one practice that will make your knives last longer. Number two, get a good butcher steel, a sharpening steel, and learn how to use it. A butcher steel does not make a dull knife sharp. It maintains the edge of a sharp knife so that it does not become dull. Got it? That's what it's for. So you pay somebody, or when you buy your new sharpened knife, you use it, and while it's still sharp, you touch it up on the steel. Every time you use it, you cut a tomato and a pepper, we touch it up on, we clean it, We dry it, we touch it up on the steel, we wipe it off for those little pieces of metal that might be on there, and we put it away in a place where the edge is not damaged. To tell you how well this works, the last time Patrick was here, I had a Cutco knife, one of my favorite knives, that Patrick hates, so I made him sharpen it, because he hates Cutco, so I made him sharpen it. No, I really needed his help, because my friend Neil Franklin came here, got drunk off his ass, saw me sharpening a knife, grabbed it out of my hands to show me how to do it the right way, and dinged the hell out of it. I mean, just, I almost sent it to Cutco, but Patrick was going to be here in like a month, so I let Patrick fix it for me. That knife was sharpened in, I believe, November, November of 2015. It is now July 28th, 2016. I have not sharpened that knife once it will still shave the hair off the back of my arm and i use it daily why end grain cutting board always clean it when you're done it never goes in the dishwasher it doesn't go in a drawer with other stuff you either have a knife block of wood or you have a dedicated space in a you know like a you have a, your your drawers and you have your little compartments you have a compartment compartment the only thing that goes in that compartment is that one knife Or you go metal, uh, uh, magnetic on the wall. Those are your three options. Okay? And it goes in there. Before it goes in there, you touch it up on the steel. 
If you're doing a lot of cutting, you do a little bit of cutting, you wipe it off, you touch it up on the steel, you wipe it off again, you do some more cutting. If you do that, it's not a chore. It doesn't require a great deal of skill. What I would advise you to do is get some cheap knives and a good steel. Cut with the cheap knife until it's not quite cutting great, but it's not dull, and restore the edge. Watch some videos on how to do it, the right angle, restore the edge, do some cutting. When you feel that it's not quite, and like tomatoes, peppers are good things to do this with. A knife that's sharp, a skin of a tomato or a skin of a pepper, you go right through that as soon as you start to move the knife, right? So when, when you do that and you kind of feel resistance, okay, that's dull. I know you can pick it up, draw it across your finger, cut yourself and bleed. It still started to get dull. What's happened is, again, go back to praying, hands straight up, and then make a point, like pull your palms out, keep your fingers together till you're at like, oh, I don't know, like 17 degrees on both sides. And the way that point comes up, and imagine that goes to a very fine point, and then bend the fingers over to one side. That's what started to happen. The edge just started to bend over. What that steel does is basically straighten that edge and just take a little bit of steel off both sides. You can usually go six months to a year between true sharpenings, with kitchen knives anyway, if you maintain them that way. It's, it's, it's really that simple. And then you can afford to have a professional once a year or once every six months or once every eight months sharpen all your good knives for you. Now, when you find that professional, make sure they know what they're doing. Make sure they know what they're doing. The way Patrick taught me to see if a knife is sharp, you hold to be careful when you do this. Don't be dumb. You hold the knife in one hand, your left, let's say. Put your thumb on the back spine of the knife. Put three fingers on the edge of the knife and push a little bit, just a little bit. And then just think about moving your hands up or down the blade, your fingers sliding, your fingers that are touching the edge. If when you go to do that, it doesn't grab a little bit, you're not like, oh, hell no, I'm not going to keep doing this. You can actually move them along that blade and it doesn't cut you. It's dull. It may shave hair, but it's dull. I got it to sharpen a knife right. When you, when you touch that edge and you go to move your fingers, you won't move them. You'll, you'll feel it and go, nope, not happening, not going to do it. That's a sharp edge. Now, if you maintain it with a steel, often four or five months in, you're down to the level of what I call the amateur pro, the guy that can sharpen a knife, but not the way I just described. And it's still serviceable and usable, and you can still keep maintaining it with a steel for another few months. But when you, when you go pay for that service, you want to go up to that premium level of sharp. Um, that's If you don't want to learn your own stone-based sharpening or get an expensive belt sharpener, that's the best practice. Hope that helps. Let's take another one. Hello, Jack. This is Harlan from Northeast Indiana. My question is, what advice can you give a northern boy moving to the south? I've lived in northeast Indiana, almost Michigan, Ohio line, my entire life, 42 years, and both of my parents are gone, and my wife's parents live down there. And we're going to move to Florida around Tarpon Springs. And I want to get your advice on what I should look forward to, what I need to watch out for when living in a hotter climate like that. Thank you very much. Bye. Well, first let me say, if you're going to be a, a Yankee, and that's how you're going to be viewed in the south, moving south to a southern state, um, probably the state you can go to with the least amount of uh, locals having any level of, like, Look at that boy moving down here. Uh, it's probably Florida. That, because there's so many people in Florida, that's how they got there. I'd say there's more people in Florida who either 
uh, came there from another state or their parents came there from another state, then there are people that are third-generation Floridians, definitely. It's a, it's a very high immigration state. A lot of people go there to retire. A lot of people do what they call snowbird there. So it, it, and it, overall, it's pretty damn receptive to northerners. So it ain't like South Texas where they think Yankees come from Dallas. And no, I'm not kidding, okay? Uh, yeah, Oklahoma's up north if you live in Austin. Right, the Mason-Dixon line is a Red River. So there's, it ain't ever bad, but there is a little bit of that whole thing. There's not a lot of that in Florida. Uh, there really isn't. Not, not from my experience. And, and remember, I spent part of my childhood there and a vacation there an awful lot. Tarpon Springs, I had to look up because I couldn't remember exactly where it is. It's just north of Tampa. Tampa is a, a pretty cool city, really overall. I tell you, Dorothy and I talk about if we didn't live here in Texas, where would we live? And there's two places that come up. One is the Fort Myers, Sanibel area, Florida, which is just south of where you're talking about. And the other is Tennessee, in the northern mountainous part of Tennessee, uh, up toward uh, North Carolina, Virginia, North, West Virginia area. And those are the two places that I can tell you that I have a pretty high opinion of it. Um, as for what to, to look forward to, It, it, it most of the time it's really a pretty amazing climate. If you want to grow stuff, it's it's awesome. You're not quite far enough south to reliably do citrus without any extra effort, but you can probably skate by with citrus. You can definitely grow all the pomegranates and plums and stuff like that you could ever want to. So it's good for that. The fishing's amazing in Florida. It's absolutely amazing. Hunting is, eh, you know, it, there's there's some wild boar hunting and some turkey hunting and. You can shoot these little deer that you can pretty much put in your game bag, like you put a rabbit in up north. But you know they're there. But it's not it's not the hunting that the Midwest is. So that that is something that goes downhill. But to me, the fishing offsets it. There's, I mean, freshwater, saltwater. It's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. the The problem with the weather is the humidity in the peak of summer is unbelievable. I, I, I have a hard time believing that I used to be acclimated to it. I know as a kid I was. Because I've, I spent, as a kid, from the time the sun came up till the sun went down, if I wasn't in school when I was living in Florida as a kid, I was outside. We were playing football. We were we did a lot of we had to live in an apartment complex. We always had swimming pools. So it's a lot of swimming, but well, we used to play. I used to play. We called it had a game we called guns, right? Running around with play guns, yelling bang at each other. Cops would probably be called today. I mean, did that nonstop. We played, you know, football. We played Tacoloco, uh, which was our version of, I guess, a, a, another name for that, Smear the Queer. Don't get mad at me. That's just the name of the freaking game. Um, and we did that. And I fished constantly by myself with friends, rode bikes. And I feel like if I tried to do that now in the Florida heat, I'd pass out. So, But I think if I were there long enough, I would acclimate to it quite a bit. Where this is a much more dry heat here in Texas, though it's hotter. It's hotter. I have told Dorothy, if we ever moved to Florida, I would want to live on the water. I would have to have the money and the ability to live on the water. Let me explain what on the water means. On the water doesn't mean there's a row of houses, there's a street, and then there's another row of houses, and you're in the second row and you can't see the beach. I'm not obsessed with the view. I'm obsessed with the reality. When we're in Sanibel in the summertime, which is why we're probably going to go in September this year instead of like August, like we've done before. When you're on that beach, it is beautiful. There's a breeze. The water has a cooling effect. It's amazing. 
you walk to the other side of the hotels, so you're on the, the non-water side of the hotels, and everything changes. It's humid. It's hot. The closer you can be to the water, and big lakes and big rivers work for this too, the better off you are from a comfort standpoint. But overall, it's pretty great place to live. That's why so many people go there. So I wouldn't overthink this or overworry this. Um, I would say it might be a good idea to put aside a few bits of cold weather gear in case you uh, you ever have to go somewhere or something like that. But a lot of your heavy clothing, just give it to Goodwill and write it off for taxes. You know, when you know for sure you're going, don't take that crap with you. You're not going to use it. You're just not. Um Cold in Florida is not the same as cold where you are. And I think that's what to look forward to. Pretty much, like, the end of September through May is awesome. It's awesome. It is the greatest weather. And when it's cold and people are running around in coats and they're say they're freezing and shivering, you look at them like they're just something wrong with them. And you just think, this is great. And you're, if the sun's out, you're probably in a T-shirt, right, when they're in a coat. It's, it's, it's amazing from that standpoint. So I'd say look forward to it. Invest in fishing gear. Invest in fishing knowledge. Take a few guided trips so you learn what you like about fishing the area. If you, if you're a fisherman, I should say. I just, that's where my head is. Um, I've told Dorothy, if we moved to Sanibel and could get on the water, I would fish every day. I would fish, and that water's so wonderful. I, we, we'd eat fish four or five times a week. It's, uh, It, 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 I'm a little jealous. Not completely because you're going way further north than I'd want to, but I'm a little jealous of you, uh, with, with going there. It's again, if I had, if we had to leave here, it would either be the mountains of Tennessee or the beaches of Florida on the Gulf Coast. And you're going to the beaches of Florida on the Gulf Coast. And I'll tell you what, there is no place in our country with more affordable, amazing oceanfront and bayfront and inlet front property than Florida. If you compare it to like Mississippi and Alabama on their Gulf Coast, that they, they just don't have it. It's not a lot of it's structural. There's just not as much place to build. It's a lot more marshy. It's a lot less practical to build right on the water. Um, you know, like Carolinas with like Myrtle Beach, astronomically expensive. Further north you go, the worse it gets. California, forget about it, right? Washington and Oregon are freaking cliffs. Where it's available, it's so expensive. Florida's actually affordable to live near or on the water, more so than any other state in the, in the country. Good laws, good gun laws, no income tax. Enjoy yourself. Look forward to your new adventure. Um, I do want to say one thing really quick on the electric sharpener thing I kind of forgot to say. If you ever find one that really works... Tell me what it is. I will order one, and if I find one that really works and does a good job, I will endorse it. Um, I meant to say that when we when I covered that, but I've heard people, oh, it's great, yeah, and I get one. It's like, no, this is crap. This is crap. It makes a rough edge on a knife, a shitty one. I can see why you'd prefer that over a butter knife, but it's not good. If you have a good one, I'll try it, and I've tried four or five, and they all went in the box, Got a return label and went back to Amazon. Just saying. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take the next one. I have a question about keeping grass at a brick patios. I have multiple large brick patios uh, outside of Maryland. 
And just wondering, I'm pulling it up right now, what's the best way to stop the grass growth between the bricks would be? Thanks. Bye. Doesn't sound like much of a survival topic, does it? But, you know, we talk about lifestyle design here all the time. We talk about permaculture. And this is a permaculture principle at work. When you create a brick or paver patio or anything like that, if it has any space, if it's not an airtight, you know, no-gap thing, which doesn't sound like it is or you wouldn't have a problem, you create edge. And you create lots of edge. Every brick creates edge for its entire circumference. And where does all abundance in life exist in nature? On the edge. So you've created an environment that is screaming for something to grow there. And you've created an interesting microenvironment. Because of the bricks, when it rains, some of the water permeates through the little cracks and goes down. And then the bricks prevent evaporation. So it's a nice little moist environment. And then you've created this wonderful little nutrient trap. And what I mean is when dust blows, it hits the cracks, it gets caught in there. And then those little dust things are like nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, manganese, all the things plants need to grow. And then a seed gets in there or a, a, a root nodule uh, you know, allows a, a creeping piece of grass to get in there and find its way. And it starts sending out more rhizomes and grass sends rhizomes out underground just a couple millimeters under the ground. And then finds a place to pop up. And next thing you know, pop, 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 grass everywhere. So you have three solutions. The first one is probably not practical. You're not going to like it. And it only works short term anyway. That would be to pull everything up, put down an impermeable barrier, something like a uh, pond liner or chain mail armor or something like that, and replace it all and grout it back in with your natural grouting material, and that would work until, oh, next year. Because all that stuff that I just said is going to happen is going to happen again, uh, and your barrier will break down, and it'll probably grow more than ever before. So it's expensive and practical. Don't do it, right? But trying to make a point by telling you that's one way you could do it. The other way is you're going to have to mechanically or chemically remove the stuff periodically, which is what you're doing now. You're pulling it up. Uh, other options would be to chemically do it with something like Roundup, which I don't recommend, but I will mention it because it explains what would happen. Over time, you will have the offending weeds and grass naturally select to be Roundup resistant uh, while you dam while all the runoff every time it rains damages the rest of your property with Roundup. So we don't want to do that. We use a low-end organic chemical like pure vinegar. You just get pure white vinegar, put it in a pump sprayer, and spray it several times a week, and uh, that will do reasonable control, and you'll still have to do some mechanical removal. Doesn't sound fun either, does it? You, you get the point. This is a problem that's not going to go away because the space is ideal for something to grow. Permaculture practitioners and theorists right now are going, I know what he's going to say. If you don't want something growing there, then you must put something there to grow that you do want there. So if you want a smooth, hard surface with nothing growing in the cracks at all, you need to build something that is not possible for anything to grow there. Solid poured concrete, for instance. Eventually it'll crack and stuff will grow out of but much better. Or you put pavers in instead of bricks that are, you know, sealed tight. They don't really have any room. You put it on top of compacted granite. 
You don't have that. So what I would recommend is to find something that you are okay with it growing there because the reason that a normal person is concerned about the grass isn't because they're all freaked out that, oh, my God, something's growing there. It's because grass is very invasive, and it does spread through rhizomes. And eventually, it's not just that there's some grass here and there. It's everywhere, and it covers the bricks. It just grows over. No one wants that. So you got to stay on top of it, which is no fun. So you might look at something like, you know, Irish moss or uh, rupture wart or coral carpet or something, a small uh, moss-like plant that can spread all through there and occupy the space to keep the grass out. And if you control the grass until that takes over, you might have a much better chance. There happens to be a website. Now, this time of year may not be the best time for this. You may have to just deal with this, figure out what you want to do, and get this you know, established in the spring next year at this point. Because it is hot. You are going to go from hot to cold pretty quick here. You don't have a lot of time to establish this stuff. Maybe, I don't know. You can contact the people on this website. I'm going to give you. It is called Steppables. S-T-E-P-A-B-L-E-S. Steppables.com. They have all types of plants that are high-traffic ground covers, things that you can walk on and don't die, and some of them are very mild-mannered. They behave themselves. They don't act like grass. And if you can imagine your brick brick patio with living green grout that you can walk on barefoot and it feels good, that's what you're going for. Because anything else you do is going to result in either repeated mechanical or chemical controls. The only other option I have for you, and this will work, but you're going to have to do it probably once every two weeks or so. Get a flaming torch weeder. So that's a complicated way of saying a torch. So something you screw up a, 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 a bottle on, a gas bottle on, you light it up, and I'll find one for you on Amazon so you can see it, and go through there and torch all your grass. And because you're on stone, it's probably not going to... St- to train and burn and stuff, but you're going to just have to tor- keep torching it. Not what I want to do. But those are the only ways you're going to control this. There's no other option. So mechanical, chemical, fire, occupy the space, or build impermeable. Because what you've got, again, is this massive amount of edge. Do a calculation and figure out how many feet of edge you have. In something like, a, let's say, a 10 by 12 patio. I don't even want to think about it, but with standard-sized bricks, it's probably a freaking almost a mile of edge that's going, come grow! I am edge. I am the life force of living things. I am where abundance takes place. Either you occupy the space or nature occupies it for you. There's no way around it. Uh, Again, steppables.com is where I'd start my search for the ground cover that would work for you and contact them, and they may be able to help you with this problem. That's why they're there. Hey, Jack, Mike from Tennessee. Uh, recently I heard you talk about premium fuel versus regular grade fuel, and it got me wondering about motor oil. So is there any um, method to the madness or the hype of motor oil, or is just regular 10W30 or whatever, you know, good enough? Should I go for the higher brand or synthetic, any of that stuff? Anything you can do to help, I appreciate Thanks. I'll be honest that I do not know this subject to the level that I know the fuel question. But let me relate a story to you. Uh, as I've mentioned in the past, when we lived in Florida when I was a kid, 
My father, uh, when we went there, decided he wanted to be in business for himself. He opened up a gas station and quickly realized that wasn't going to pay the bills. So he moved to a, a larger location and also sold tires, both used and new. And they did oil changes and added oil to cars. Because that was back in the days when there was two sets of pumps. There was a full service and a self-service, that type of thing. And to get started, he decided to work with one of the major companies. He ended up working with Shell. And he went to a couple classes and things like that as part of being a franchisee and got everything set up and everything came from Shell. And I guess it would have been about 1978, Shell came out with this premium engine oil with cleaners and conditioners in it. And all of a sudden he started having customers have seals fail, fail and stuff like that. So he got rid of it and stopped carrying that. And Shell was upset with him. He's like, I'm not, you know. but the plain old oil didn't do that. It's not 1978, though. But basically, I think you have good regular oil. And like you said, 10W30, 5W40, whatever it is. And you do that based on your vehicle's recommendation and the time of year. And then you have your synthetics. I personally feel that synthetic oils are worth the extra money. They're certainly worth the convenience of being able to go longer between oil changes And I, I, my experience in running synthetic oil on my vehicles, including vehicles that specifically called for it, has been wonderful. And I think we have, because of synthetic oils and some other things, vehicles are running longer today than ever before. And I, I want to kind of point out with this question, there's the mythology out there. They don't build them like they used to. They don't build them like they used to. When I was a kid, if you bought a used car with 75,000 miles on it, I mean... People were like, wow, man, that's, that's high mileage and it's, you know, it's not long for this world, but it's a fine car for a kid or something like that, you know. Cars with 100,000 miles look like they were about to fall apart. I see cars today with 200,000 miles on them that still run beautifully. They're not, they're not showroom condition anymore. You can tell that motor isn't what it was the day it rolled off the assembly line, but There were some cars and trucks with 200,000 miles on them in the 70s and 80s, but not like there is today. Just the, No, I'm sorry. The, the motors of today outlast the, no, the motors of yesterday. They're more complicated. Uh, they take more effort to work on. They're more expensive. They're more expensive to maintain in some ways. Parts for them, I mean, there's so many things about them that you would find a good old-fashioned 350, you know, four-bolt main to be preferable. You know, my, my kingdom for a 327 fuel right? I mean, those old motors were even the fuel injective stuff like that was easy to work on. You know, you two types of carburetors, four barrels to two barrels. I mean, there, it was it was easy. I remember a car I looked at um, when I was looking for my first car as a kid. I didn't buy it, but I don't remember what it was. It was a Dodge It was made in like the 50s. It was a straight eight. And you open the hood and you could like fit four people under the hood. There was basically a motor, a battery, a water pump, a radiator, a fan belt, an alternator. And that was pretty much it. There was like nothing else. Like you could just look at the whole thing and go, I could completely replace everything in here in 20 minutes if I had the equipment. You know, I mean, so there, that was what made them great. But... Motors last longer than ever, and the manufacturers of today's motors are pushing the limits of the efficiency and reliability of internal combustion engines. They are not in any way falling short either. 
they're really, after over a hundred years, have fine-tuned these things to be as good as possible. So my recommendation when it comes to oil, the frequency and type recommended by your manufacturer. If they recommend standard oil, that's what I recommend you run. If they recommend synthetic, that's what I would recommend you run. They have designed that motor to be optimum under conditions that they make recommendations for. And there are, you know, some vehicles that you could go ahead and you probably get an upgrade out of going to synthetics, but if it says synthetic, use it. That's, that's my big takeaway here. Hope that helps us take another one. Hey, Jack. Um, got a just quick update for you. Uh, this is Nick, uh, formerly in Denver, Colorado. Uh, you may remember a call a little more than a year ago where asked, uh, is it worth taking uh, an extra year of working to save up 70, about $75,000 on a report that I did meet that goal? And uh, right now we are at the airport starting the next chapter in our lives. So uh, anyway, I just want to thank you for all you, all you do and your inspiration. Uh, thank you much. Bye. You know, the, uh, the first thing I thought is I should, uh, pay, play the, uh, the Braveheart Freedom, you know, that Dave Ramsey plays when someone calls and says they got out of debt, but this seems bigger than that. And I'm always one for doing my own thing instead of emulating others. So I have about 20 seconds of a, a song here for you from Alice Cooper, of all people. I'm playing this in honor of the caller today. Here we go. You know, I'm trying to put some more lighthearted stuff in the show and keep people a little bit more motivated. And even if you don't like that kind of music, and if you don't, at least at certain times of the, your life, there's something wrong with you. I don't rock out to stuff like that anymore, but as a kid, I remember, that's why I remembered the song, right? There's something wrong with you if you don't occasionally just... But anybody can enjoy that for 20 seconds, I think, in the context. And I just kind of want to point out that, like, If the first thing you thought when you heard this guy talk, and I'm not putting you down, I'm just going to try to gut check you here, was, must be nice. If that was the first thing you thought, you will never get there. You'll never get there. And I know this audience is different than the average people in the average throughout the country. Because I know from so many conversations with people that most of you thought, good for him. You'll get there. You'll get there. When... And I was still struggling, basically, but we were beginning to get traction. And my wife would go to work, and she worked at a medical office with all these other nurses. And she would come in, and she would have, like, a really nice piece of steak left over from the night before. You know, beautifully medium rare, maybe some roasted potatoes and some grilled vegetables. And the people around her, her other nurse friends, would look at it and go, well, Jack must be doing pretty good and kind of snotty. Not really blatant, but you could tell that's what they were saying. Like, oh, I wish I could have that. Well, she's sitting with them down at the cafeteria where they're spending six, seven, eight, nine bucks on basically junk food. Well, that piece of steak, those grilled potatoes and that grilled vegetable cost less than they're paying for their garbage food. But we took the time to cook it, and she cared enough to bring it in. 
But yeah, we were doing better than most of them were, and yet spending less to eat better. But our attitude had always been when you heard someone else had done well, good for them. Good for them means internally, I know I can do that too. Must be nice means I know that I can't. That's the internal dialogue. And that's the lesson here. Your way to win with life, with people, with relationships, with money is 99% internal dialogue driving your attitude. That's what it's really all about. So always be on the alert. When you feel resentment or animosity, and I don't say anybody did, but if you do, that is your signal that you have work to do internally. When you feel happy for someone, you don't even know this guy. You might not even remember the call. I sort of vaguely remember it, right? I don't remember the details, but I sort of vaguely remember and remember answering the question. But I think, awesome. That's great for him. And when I was killing myself, working in a warehouse for a dollar over minimum wage, packing boxes, working 12-hour shifts, I felt the same way, which is why... You were, you're, you know, I was able to move up relatively quickly for somebody without a degree in the business world because that was the attitude. That was the internal dialogue. I know that I'm destined for something else. Now, you always have to blend that with action and you have to be alert to the opportunities around you and willing to take them when others will not. When somebody says that's risky, you know, look at it. Are you jumping off of a, Five-story building, ass first onto a pipe. Okay, they're probably right. They're probably try. They're looking out for you, bro. Okay, but another example of this: when when Dorothy and I bought our second house in Arkansas, my brother-in-law said that's risky. Wait a minute, you're driving a freaking SUV with a payment that's higher than my payment on that piece of real estate. Which one of those two things is risky? I just bought an appreciating asset. You're buying a depreciating asset with debt. Which one of those tactics is really risky, right? So always evaluate that. And there's so many times people say, well, that's risky, or do you really want to risk that? My answer most of the time, with a gut check first, hell yeah. Hell yeah. And when someone else does it, and it works, I say, good for you. Good for this guy. Freedom. Turn your back on the system now. You used it to get where you are. Now go develop your life your own way. I know more of you people are going to do that in the next couple of years than have for our last eight. I know it's going to happen. There's so much momentum built up in so many of your lives. I hear your stories. You guys send me pictures. You tell me about what you're doing. I believe that you can get it done. But I believe that the only way you will get it done is to actually admire it when other people do it. That is the biggest life lesson that I can give you in success. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Paul from Australia. I've just got a, a comment, really, on uh, some of the talking about um, proactive policing versus different policing models. Um, I just wanted to reflect on the experience that I've just had. Um, um, basically, what it is is I've, um, I'm, I'm interested in, um, in cryptocurrency, and I'm actually involved um, um, I'm working on some projects in that area. And um, some of the guys that work, identified a um, what, what looked like basically a con that was being per- perpetrated. It's actually all around the world at the moment, um, called S-Coin. And um, basically, it's a pyramid scheme. Um, it's not, it, it doesn't even look like it is a cryptocurrency. 
um, but it's being wrapped up in this kind of aura of cryptocurrency. And we had some concerns around the way that that could could make. Um, I, I work in the Melbourne Bitcoin Technology Centre, and, and there were some concerns around how the fallout of this could could impact um, maybe maybe some of the perceptions. And and anyway, um, they they paid. And I actually went to a conference on Sunday, and it was indeed a con. And so after all of this, um, I uh, I thought, well, maybe I should uh, call the you know let let somebody know that this is a this is a con in, in, in action, as, as it were, and maybe we can prevent some people losing all their life savings because the place was full of pensioners and what have you. Um, now, yeah, as I say, there's 400 people there. They're probably having these conferences all around the world. They, they, they have offices all, all around the world. And um, basically, I, call, I called up, I ended up um, calling up, calling up uh, one of the police stations that, that's around where the conference was, and... Um, I just wanted to report it so that um, so that I thought somebody could investigate it. Maybe I was being naive, but after a 10-minute conversation, I was told that they don't do proactive policing. That's not something that they do, and somebody has to be a victim of a crime for it to actually to do anything. So, um, is this normal? Is this is this is this everywhere? Because um, I I was of the mistaken belief that 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 that, 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 that this was something that the police were actually supposed to do, or or or. Or, or regulation in some way was supposed to try to fix, because um, this is obviously um, happening, and I'm quite certain that yeah. So, so uh, it wasn't really that I didn't have the right information, or there was anything wrong. It was that um, they won't do proactive policing. So I was just interested on in your comments on that. So I've gone on a bit. Um, yeah, okay. Look to look forward to hear your response. Thank you. So you used two words there, Paul, law enforcement regulation, and you're conflating the two, and they're really not. So let's say that you are doing something in violation. I don't know what to call it in, in Australia. Here we have a thing called the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, you have a exhaust on your factory that is out of line with regulations for emissions, just as an example. I know it seems different, but it's really not. It's a good analogy to understand this. Okay, so the local police department, if, if I call them up and I say, I think Paul's widget is exceeding uh, EPA standards for emissions, the cops are going to be like, I, I, don't, I don't care. I don't have anything. That, that's not my job. I, I don't do that. Now, if those emissions are drifting into somebody's house and it's watering their eyes up and they're being damaged by it, uh, law enforcement may or may not look at that, but they'd be a hell of a lot more likely to because there's a complaining victim, right? But the most you're going to get is a referral to the agency that handles those regulations. Now, let's say Paul's widgets is dumping the toxic crap into the atmosphere The EPA finds out about it, the EPA investigates it, and the EPA decides to intervene. There's all different types of outcomes. They could just come in and write you a fine and say to correct it, cease and desist, shut down operations of your widget manufacturing. Um, they could decide there's a threat, and then they might involve local law enforcement for support on a raid or a takeover or some other hostile action of the state. But the police aren't coming in to deal with that. They're, they're not. Um If there is a financial institution that's in violation of federal regulations, it's up to 
the regulatory body for the country or the province, etc., however it's governed, to step in and launch an investigation or intervene or do something. And if you want to be a whistleblower type thing, that's who you would convey to. Local PD, just not only do they not really care, even if they care, they have no authority over that. They have no, they have no ability to act on that until such time as the regulatory body requests their assistance. Just like if um, local police department, let's say in San Antonio, is, is uh, investigating a multiple murder, Uh, the FBI can't come take the investigation over without an invite because it's not federal. It's a local issue. Now, if that murderer uh, is suspected of also committing a, a related crime or another murder in, say, Oklahoma, and you have multiple states, then the FBI can come in without invitation. See, there's a certain uh, jurisdictional uh, restriction on both sides of the equation. Likewise, uh, uh, a, a cop in San Antonio can request assistance from a cops uh, from a law enforcement organization, let's say in Washington State, but they can't just go in and begin their own investigation in Washington without some sort of collaboration, if that makes sense. And that's what's going on here. So Esquin, I haven't really looked into it. I kind of looked it up, and the first thing I saw is it a scam or not, which means it's probably a scam, um, pyramid scheme type thing, whatever. Those things are very much run at the edge of the law. They're generally not run illegally. They may be a scam, but they may not be illegal. You see what I'm saying? And that's how most of these things are run. And if it's running on a virtual currency, then it's really able to push the edge. But those are the types of things that federal authorities and international authorities generally target, go after with regulation, and then bring in the backup. The best approach to those things is the free market with things that say, when you Google it, you find 400 sites that say, this thing's a ripoff and here's how. That's, that's the best way to police against those things. Because by the time the regulators figure out what's going on, the damage is done, and often... Maybe it's a scam to you and me, but maybe it's working. And all these people have all this money tied up in it, but yet the system is working, you know? And then when the regulators come in, it crashes the system, and that's actually when everybody gets hurt. Or after everybody gets hurt, the regulators come in. Or after some of the people are hurt, the regulators come in and everybody gets hurt. Where the preemptive strike of, Don't get involved with this. It's probably a lot better. And this is what they're preying on with any of these things. People that are stuck in life, that are the ones that from the last segment say must be nice when somebody else does well, that type of thing. They feel like they need more. They have to have more money. They want to believe these things. Um, I just had uh, my sister-in-law text my wife and say, look at this website and tell me what you think. And it was the same type of thing. One well, illegal, you know, but it's one of those things you get two people and they get two people and they get two people and it just doesn't work that way. It never does. There's, there's some people that make out well in those things, but the majority lose their ass. And my bigger problem with it is now the S coin thing may be bigger than this, but the, the network marketing thing usually destroys relationships. It usually does. It ruins family relationships. It ruins friend relationships. 
Um, either because the person that's, that's doing it won't shut up about it, and the friends and family get tired of them and ostracize them, or they do get involved and it doesn't work, and then they blame them. And, and there's better ways to run a business than trying to build a pyramid of people who will tell two people to buy your soap or your Bitcoin or your gold or your silver. Um, the big lie of that industry is that's how everything will be distributed in the future because it makes more sense. It makes the least amount of sense. The flatter a distribution channel, the more margin to the manufacturer and the lower price point the product can be sold at. If I have to pay seven, eight layers in a distribution channel, no matter what kind of distribution channel it is, the price point to the customer goes up and the product's less competitive. That's just, you can't get around that. That's why the ones that say, well, we're legitimate because we deal in silver coins are selling $16 silver coins for 40 bucks because the profit has to come from somewhere. In fact, metals would be the worst product because they're a fixed commodity with a known quantifiable price and you can't differentiate and make it worth more because you made it patented or something shit like that. You know, it just doesn't work. Stay away from stuff like it. But that's not the job of the police. The the answer they gave you is completely correct. Jack, this is Jason from Oklahoma. Hey, uh, I was listening to your segment on the farm bot. Man, that's awesome. I saw that a few uh, weeks ago or longer. But anyways, one application I was thinking of uh, regarding like Curtis Stone, a lot of his stuff he transplants. So set it up to uh, start to make the initial planning and save yourself all that time and that you can be doing something else. All right, keep up the good work. Enjoy the show. So, yeah, that would be an interesting thing to do, and, and I want to talk about two things with this. First of all, I want people to understand why people like Curtis Stone do transplants. It's, it's different than why you and I might do them. We do them because, okay, uh, my, it will be safe to plant this plant after April 1st. And so if I start the seeds on March 7th, I get three weeks of growth onto it, 21 days, before it goes into the ground, when it wouldn't be safe to have it outside unprotected, and therefore I get a yield faster. Yields are why people like Curtis are doing it. For those who don't know who Curtis Stone is, he's an urban farmer. And he makes his full-time living farming small backyards, his own backyard and the backyards of other people in his neighborhood. He puts in long beds, and he grows high-value crops. Most of his money comes from leafy green crops, lettuces and things like that. He sells organic to restaurants and direct-to-consumer. Okay, He is doing transplants for an entirely different reason. Let's say, and I don't even want to go with plant types or bed lengths, but let's just say that a bed can hold 200 plants. How much space is necessary for those 200 plants as seedlings before they really start to put on size. Not much. Couple, three, four, five square feet. So he is constantly planting. You harvest, you plant. And, you know, three or four weeks later, you harvest, you plant. You harvest, you plant. You harvest, you plant. And the quicker that turnover the greater the production during the peak season, the more income. Okay, So unlike the person that is growing for their own family, how much freaking lettuce can a family of four or even six eat? 
and you could just be putting in a few plants here and there. He's doing high-volume replanting. And it's not about beating the weather, at least after the first run of the year. It's about increasing production. So for 21 days, let's say it's a, a, a 42-day pl- uh, product. For 21 days, I'm growing in a very tight space, and I'm, I'm growing out another crop in large space, and then as soon as I harvest it, I can drop it in. So for a farm bot to do that would be challenging. Not impossible, not difficult to overcome, but it would be challenging. Um, you'd almost have to develop a system that created the transplants in something that was like a almost like a magazine or just a tray. Uh, you wouldn't want them in the like the little tubes or the little plastic trays you have to push them out of, but little soil blocks, something like that. There's no reason that you couldn't actually have right at the you know, let's say you've got your bed and right at the base of the bed, you could even have like a micro greenhouse with electronic controls to open vents and things like that and a little bit of heat, right? For your tender little ones to get them going faster, like just a a, a simple like, you know, little neutrino controlling uh, a, uh, a little heating pad underneath them, something like that. So... You could even have the robot make the cubes, put the seeds in, and then when harvest is done, do the transplant. And that actually wouldn't be hard. I have a product, I think it's called a, st- a st- stand and plant is what it's called. Uh, I'll look it up, put a link to it if you want to see it. It basically looks like, a, it looks like a PVC pipe, but it's not. It's molded, injected plastic. And it's got a hole in the top, and it's got a little thing that you squeeze, and down at the bottom it has a point. And when you squeeze the thing, the point opens like a bird's beak, and then when you let go, it closes. And what you do is you jam it in the ground, you drop a seed in it, you click it to open, and you pull it out of the ground, and the dirt falls back around it. Something like that could be built for the farm bot that basically opens the dirt, the plant goes down a tube, and then the dirt's restored, and then it pulls its arm up and goes and does the next one. And see, when we think in humans, we think we have to be extremely efficient to do high-volume planning because we only have eight hours a day. We get tired. We wear out. We need breaks. We get sick. Uh, we have other things to do. Farm bot has nothing to do but work 24-7. So it could do it one at a time. So what if it takes two hours to do what you can do in an hour? You're not there. You're not doing it. It doesn't matter. So what if it takes 24 hours a day of work for two days for something to be done that you could have done in one eight-hour day. You're not there. You're not doing it. The machine does it. And when you start to see machines empower small entrepreneurs like an urban farmer making fifty to $75,000 a year, then what it's going to be able to do for the huge companies is undescribable. We, we still can't get our heads around this, guys, I'm telling you. And I think we need to be embracing it. Because Curtis has been on the show several times, and he said... If I could hire work for what would they would be willing to work for without all of the the crap, without the um, you know the cost of benefits and insurances and stuff like that, I could expand my operation. But it's not worth it. Well, you don't have to pay health insurance for a robot. You don't have to pay vacation time for a robot. If it gets sick, you hire a technician who fixes it. That's it. Or you learn to fix it yourself. You can never be the doctor to your own employee. doesn't work, right? I guess if you're a doctor, you could. But even that's limited. 
but you can be your own technician to your own little simple open source robot. That's the future. That's where things are headed. With that, I want to remind you, if you like this show and the work that I do, you can help support me by joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members to learn more. And when you do, you'll see all the great benefits that you get. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service. First responders as well, active duty and prior service. You guys all qualify for a discount. Just email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC, service discount, in the subject line. Sign up online or by mail for the member support brigade. Guys, if you like this show, that's what keeps it on the air. That's the number one thing, member support brigade. The other thing, though, is TSPAS. TSPAS is a program I should have started a long time ago. Go to tspaz.com whenever you want to shop on Amazon. That's all you literally have to do. You don't have to pay attention to anything I am recommending if you don't want to. You don't have to read my reviews. You don't have to do crap. You go to tspaz.com, click the link that says shop here for Amazon. Click here to shop on Amazon for any and all items. Buy your stuff on Amazon that you were going to buy anyway. We get credit for your business. Um, I should have done this eight years ago. I should have done this when I launched the show. It's the simplest, easiest way. It works great, and I do put out recommendations. Today is for a book, and it is called uh, Death in a Lonely Land. It's by a guy named Peter, Cath- uh, Peter Hathaway Capstick. He's one of my favorite you know, uh, hunting authors of all time. He's up there for me with Robert Rourke and Jack O'Connor and Elmer Keith and people like that. Uh, Ernest Hemingway, even, I would put this guy in league with. Um. Just a fantastic guy that, that writes these stories about hunting dangerous game in a, in a time that doesn't really exist anymore, even though a lot of it was only, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Um, the way that it was back then and the way that it was 30, 40 years ago or longer when this guy first started was just isn't around anymore. Unfortunately, Mr. Capstick's not around anymore. Um, but Death in a Lonely Land, I think, is one of the good first books by him because it's a collection of like over 20 short stories. So they're not, like, a lot of his books are four or five chapters of deep in-depth about, you know, leopard hunting or stories of past hunters. He's written a lot of articles about, like, the Lions of Savo and things like that. Um, Just fantastic. This book is a little bit unique. A lot of you guys owe Mr. Capstick just a little bit for information you've gotten from me about a very, very cool thing. See, it was Death in a Lonely Land toward one of his last stories. He writes about lamenting about wanting to have Biltong. And he talks about what Biltong was in the bush in Africa, how it was your energy stick, basically. And for those who don't know, Biltong is a... The closest thing you can think of, if you don't know what it is, is beef jerky, but it ain't beef jerky. It's cured red meat, cured with salt, pepper, coriander, and a little bit of vinegar. And it's hung, and it's cured, and that's it. And I've taught a lot of you guys how to make it. And a lot of you have made it. I've gotten pictures. Even some of you are so kind, you've sent me pieces of your biltong to try. Thank you very much for that. And it was this book that launched me into my journey with biltong. I read about it, and the next day I made a batch. And I've never, I don't think I've ever made jerky again. This is the first time I made biltong. I love jerky too, by the way. Send me jerky too if you want to. Um, but when I, when I, when I get a piece of meat that I want to cure, I always find myself making biltong out of it. You make some, you'll you'll see why. And if you want to read the basic, real recipe right out of South Africa, uh, check out Death in a Lonely Land. It's one of the chapters toward the end. And uh, I'll warn you, if you read some of Capstick's work, you might end up buying every book that he has. 
Uh, most of them are in Kindle now. That's a good thing because most of the, his books are either in limited prints now or they are selling leftover inventory. And so they're all, you know, like hardcovers that are like 20 bucks and up. And I have some first editions that I got out when they were published and, uh, they're worth, some of them are worth a couple hundred bucks. Um, first editions of certain copies of his books. So, uh, it's, it's getting harder and harder to, to afford and justify the cost, but I think most of the Kindle versions are 10 to 12 bucks. And, uh, they're the kind of books, they're not like bunches of tables and stuff where you might want the hard copy. They work just fine in, uh, in a Kindle format. You can find those at TSPAS or on the blog today, and you can do all your Amazon shopping, uh, through that, through those links and, uh, help us out a great deal. And that brings us to today's closing song. Um, I have been trying to bring you guys some fun stuff lately. Um, this song is from 1978, and it's by Joe Walsh. And it's from one of his solo albums. Uh, that is the one that he actually recorded while he was still with the Eagles. So there was this overlap from about 77 to 80 as things were starting to fall apart. Uh, for the Eagles and, uh, Walsh was doing his own thing and still working with the band and collaborating back and forth on various things. And, uh, this is Life's Been Good. And, uh, I bet almost everybody in the audience has heard this song and you can listen to the words and take your own meanings from it. I want to actually talk about, you know, kind of my teenage years in Pennsylvania. We loved this song. We really did, right? This is, we're in the 80s, so we were quite a few years after it came out. But we, this song was so popular amongst me and my friends growing up in that coal region and not having a lot. You know, my first car was a 1975 Grand Prix LJ. And my best friend Heath's first car was like a 74 Monte Carlo, the big boats. And a lot of the young folks in that age bracket, that's what they had was Monte Carlos. And not even like the, you know, early 80s, scaled down Monte Carlos, the big, giant, long hood, you know, little bit of a fin going on Monte Carlos. So we changed the words to this song from my Maserati does 185, you know, I lost my license, now I don't drive, to my Monte Carlo does 105, I got my license, now I can drive. And I, we had a whole bunch of like, you know, sing-along lyrics that were made up for us back then uh, that I, I can't remember because that's many, many years ago. There's there's a military tour in the middle of that. There's multiple careers. Even my memory, I can't tell you all of those things, but I do remember that one. And me and my friend Mark Rosenberg are driving around singing that together in his money and, uh, and stuff like that. And, you know, I'll tell you what. Most of those guys that I grew up with, This is your lesson of the day, coming back to something earlier. They're still in that little coal town, and they're not far from it. And they're good guys. They're, they, a lot of them have families. They're, they're doing okay. They're relatively happy. But they're still in that mode of working in a factory or working swing shift and just trying to get by and wondering if their kids are going to have it at least as good as they do, and they ain't got it that great. Very few of those people that I grew up with, and they were good friends, made it. You know, made it in life to where they're really happy. They're really comfortable. I mean, I'm in my mid-40s. This is when by now you should have found something for yourself and you should have, and, and I'm going to tell you what it is. And it was something I had to learn. It's that 
you know, must be nice versus good for them attitude. We were poor and we knew we were poor. But see, we were hitting on something with this song. My Monte Carlo does 105. I got my license. Now. We were willing to make fun of ourselves about it. We were willing to be okay with it. But some of us, like me, were okay with it because we knew it wasn't permanent. And some of us were okay from a feeling of, well, this is all we're ever going to have, so we might as well enjoy it. And the ones of the, the, the second one, the ones that always looked at people that had nice things and resented them. The few kids that were from families with some money that were driving new cars, that were driving the two-year, three-year-old Mustangs that said rich boy and stuff like that. And all I used to think is, good for him. Good for them. I hope I can do that for my kid when I'm, you know, when I'm my dad's age. That is the key. That is the key to success more than anything else in life. Because it always goes back to the eternal, internal dialogue. If your internal dialogue is one of, I can't, I won't, it'll never happen, you're right. And if your internal dialogue of, is one of, I'm going to, I'm doing, it's already happening, I'm making it happen, you probably will. Because it's not magic. It's not magic. It's pro self-programming. But then you have to take the positive attitude and the opportunities that come, you have to capitalize on them, you have to make it happen. Whether it's building a homestead, building a business, getting out of corporate America, designing the life that you want, creating the resiliency in yourself and your children and your family, your community, whatever it is you want to achieve, without the right internal dialogue, it cannot be done. With the right internal dialogue, with hard work and dedication, you can make it happen. You probably will. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.